How's it going, everyone? This is Cool for Thought, and I'm Arib Khan. Anti-Muslim rhetoric isn't anything new in America. In 1915, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals overturned two lower court rulings and said that a man named George Dow, a Syrian applying for U.S. citizenship, could be naturalized because people from Syria should be considered white and not Muslim. We'll get into whether Islam is a race later in the episode, but the point here is that these anti-immigrant attitudes stretch as far as humanly and often legally possible. At every step, America's required a certain sense of volitional allegiance from its immigrants. Basically, we want every new group to prove to us over and over again that yes, you can be Americans. Don't believe me? Ask the Irish. Or Italians. It's happened to every group that's been considered an other, but the one thing that separates a few ostracized groups is that one visible classification that still dictates your status as a minority, skin color. Don't believe me? Ask Latinos. Ask African Americans. And yes, ask Muslims. We're joined on this episode by Riham Usman to talk Islam in America. We discuss the stigma of being Muslim in 2016, the intersectionality of race and Islam, and the savagery of ISIS. Riham is the digital media and communication strategist for the Muslim Public Affairs Council in Washington, D.C., where she specializes in digital media strategy and manages the organization's online presence. Riham also represented MPAC at the annual White House Iftar, where she chatted with President Obama and is featured in the National Center for Civil and Human Rights exhibition titled Who Like Me is Threatened? While Reham's focus is on digital media, her expertise also includes being a coffee connoisseur and incorporating Beyonce into almost every conversation. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about your background. So um, obviously I grew up Muslim. Um, I'm of a Sudanese background and like a lot of people my age, I kind of like grew up with an identity crisis and then um, that's also in terms of not only like my racial identity but also like religious identity and with everything happening in the world. Obviously, that's really tough for a kid growing up in America. But um, I think right now I'm in a really unique position um, being under 25 years old, working for one of the top civil rights policy Muslim organizations in the country and like having an inside view into all the craziness that's happening in this country with Muslims um, in America. So I think that's kind of where I'm at right now. And I actually remember reading a couple months ago an article about you, about something that happened with an airline. Yeah, so um, so I started wearing the, the hijab, um, the Muslim headscarf, when I was first year in college. And um, so I never had any experiences with discrimination. And then I applied for my first summer job just to work at an airline. And it actually was for Air France, which is really ironic because France is always discriminating against the Muslim community. Um, but it didn't even cross my mind that something like negative would come out of this. Mm -hmm. It was really oblivious, very young and naive. And then um, they just kind of caught me off guard and they just said, uh, can you remove your headscarf so you can work here? And then like taken back, I was thinking like, you know, this is discrimination, right? Right. And um, it was actually ironic because the person who had worked to get me fired was a Muslim man named Muhammad. Oh, wow. So it shocked me because... Wait. Yeah, I know. What? Very ironic. And um, so I was thinking, you know, as soon as I found out my manager was, was named Muhammad, I was like, oh, cool. He's going to let me pray. Um, it's going to be really easy working here. Mm -hmm. But as soon as I walked in, actually, 
the first thing he did was he kind of looked at me a little funny and then he handed me the sheet of paper hmm. um, with these pictures of how, to, how I can style my, my hair. Like here you can do a low bun, a high bun. And I laughed thinking, of course, you know, Muhammad knows right. I cover my hair. So I handed him back the sheet and I smiled. <laughs> and then later Muhammad ended up getting me fired. Yeah, but um, actually it was interesting. On the other hand, there was another man, I can't remember his name, but he was a Muslim man from Algeria or Morocco. And he actually contacted me afterwards. He got my phone number and he called me and he told me everything that was happening behind the scenes, saying, here's the discussion that was happening to get you fired. It was discrimination. I said something. I told them to not fire you. And they didn't listen to me. So he was. there was somebody advocating for me on the other hand. So it's not uh, for every bad person, there's somebody who is doing something good to, you know, Make sure you have a place in this country. Right. So you mentioned that you work for you know a pretty big civil rights organization. Can you tell us what it is and, and, and what you do? Yeah, so I work for the Muslim Public Affairs Council, and um, it's an advocacy organization. Um, they advocate for American Muslims um, at, at the government level um, and then also in Hollywood and media. So it's really cool. And then my job is pretty cool because I get to work with all three industries. Um, I've had experience like working, helping out with um, improving perceptions of Muslims in Hollywood, and then also with the media and um, seeing what happens, you know, on Capitol Hill, what's happening in the White House, Department of Justice, Homeland Security, places like that. Mm. Yeah. So what are some interesting things you deal with on like a day-to-day basis? So um, my job is actually in digital media and communications and development. Um, So on a normal day, my job is actually pretty... um, my job is not boring at all. I think there's no boring day at MPAC. Um, but um, I would say that some of the challenges we face are actually, it's interesting to see that the challenges we face are both from within the Muslim community and also from the outside. Um, just working for the organization, you see how diverse the Muslim community is with their approach to making a change. Obviously, we're all in this together. We're all facing backlash. Um, as a result of um, like the rise in extremism, and there's different approaches. Do you engage with the government? Do you boycott the government? Um, if Fox News asks you to come on, do you say yes or do you say no? Like These are the questions, and we face a lot of backlash for the work we do. So I, I get a good idea of what's happening in the inside with the conversations, but then it's also interesting to see like the outside conversations. When, um, for instance, last week I went to a hearing with Ted Cruz, and right, right. it was the most interesting experience ever to be in a room with a lot of people who frankly don't like Muslims Mm -hmm. and they're not shy about it Mm -hmm. and to see how to see the diversity also in thoughts within our government um, you have those you know in the room like Ted Cruz who are saying that you know we need to look at Muslim neighborhoods, quote-unquote Muslim neighborhoods, right? Right. Which don't exist. And he's calling for profiling. He's calling for all these really bad policies. But then on the other hand, in the same room sitting right next to him, there's a senator who is calling him out for discriminating against Muslims. And he's saying, you know, Muslims do have a place in this country. So again, it's that same um, contrast between for every person who's calling for negative policies and really bad policies, there's somebody who's calling for inclusion and diversity and um, all the things that America was founded on. Mm -hmm. So your work is pretty inherently political. It is, even though that's not directly the work I do. Mm -hmm. um, I get to see a lot of it. I do get to work Mm -hmm. on it from a communications point of view. Um, A lot of my work is actually taking what's happening 
um, on the inside and then communicating that to the Muslim community to like show them what is the work that's actually being done. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people, they are seeing like, they're seeing like the sexier things happening. They're seeing pictures of you with, you know, Obama. Right. They're seeing pictures of you at all these really cool iftars and things mm-hmm. that are happening. But that's not all it is. There's mm-hmm. a lot of really hard work that's being done. Um, it's really tough. A lot of these people, they're taking so much time away from their families. Um, there are lots of times on the weekend, you know, where you're going to get a call um, maybe at 9 a.m. saying there was a terrorist attack in this country. We need to put out a press release. So people are taking time right. away and they're really invested in this work. Mm-hmm. So I really want people to see that side. So how do you go about kind of showing the less sexy sides of that? Yeah, that's the tough part. Um, it's actually taking a step back and it's like reflecting on like the actual value of the work. Mm-hmm. Um thinking about like let's say let's say that hearing that I went to, right? I'm not gonna sit there and just tell people, look, we saw Ted Cruz, we saw, you know, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham and this person. It's not really about the people that's in the room, it's about like what is the real work that came out of it. That's mm-hmm. the harder part. And sometimes the answer isn't like apparent right away. Sometimes like you gotta go home and then you kinda like absorb like what did I just witness? Mm-hmm. Like that was a really unique place to be and not everyone gets to be in those rooms and gets to hear those conversations. So it's kind of like a responsibility. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's almost like a privilege to get to be in those seats yeah. and get to see what's happening behind the scenes. As part of your job, do you craft those releases? Yeah. So how do you feel when you're writing those? You know, it's actually really depressing. And I was thinking about this the other day. Um, I, think, I think it was the attack in Turkey. Um, and then at I was, the airport. Yeah, at the airport, and I was thinking to myself that it's really sad now that a lot of these press releases, because these attacks are happening so often, like, mm-hmm. wasn't it, there was Bangladesh. Um, Just a couple days yeah, ago. Yeah, Bangladesh. And then today um, was Baghdad, right? Mm-hmm. Where over, I think, 120 people were killed. Yep. And it's happening so often now that we're almost becoming desensitized. And I actually caught myself, like, feeling desensitized to what's happening and like I I don't want to be like that you know when I'm writing these press releases it should not be okay here condemn insert you know the part where you say our condolences it shouldn't mm-hmm. be like that like it should be more heartfelt and yeah. every time an attack happens like I should feel something yeah so as soon as I catch myself not feeling that way like I kind of like reset my intentions so you kind of you kind of feel like you fall into that congressman after a shooting thoughts and prayers yeah I I catch myself doing Mm -hmm. that it's unfortunate and I was telling somebody I think a reporter you know because reporters are constantly writing about bad news in the world and I was saying like how do you actually deal with this and they were telling me it's like it's like a doctor you know when a doctor has to deal with a patient that was diagnosed with you know deadly form of cancer Mm -hmm. they can't always feel emotions right sometimes they have to just say I'm sorry you have this many months left to live and I can't do anything about it but it's really for yourself just because you like your heart can only handle so much right Mm -hmm. but I I also feel like on the other hand like with my work it's so it's such a big responsibility I don't want to treat it like any other job where you're treating a person as if they're just not a you know a person in the end for my sake like I I you know I chose this path so yeah there's gonna be days I'm gonna be depressed and Mm -hmm. because I wrote a press release I'd rather feel something than not feel anything at all the National Counterterrorism Center released some statistics in March um, where they said that 82 to 97% of all victims of terrorism are Muslim. Even if we go with the low end and say, you know, 82%, what 
of all victims of terrorism globally are Muslim. That still means that over three quarters of the victims, of, or you know, people who die by whether it be a, a shooting or a hostage situation, or you know, a bombing or something, that person's still Muslim. How do we reframe or maybe refocus this argument to show that the majority of these people suffering, you know, are Muslim? And further than that, how do we do that while simultaneously attempting to not downplay the suffering of non-Muslims? Oh, well, I think I think people have not heard that statistic enough. Um, I think even within the Muslim community, they haven't. Um, like, unfortunately, during Ramadan, like, it's been such a bloody month. Mm. We've seen so many attacks, and a lot of them have been on Muslims. And I actually, The majority. Yeah, the majority have been on Muslims. And I don't think the media is, like, showing that enough. Um, I think that... A lot of it has to be us like really putting the faces of those that were killed, treating these attacks the same way we treated Paris and San Bernardino mm-hmm. and Orlando. Mm-hmm. Like you saw the faces of those who were killed. It wasn't just a headline where you said 40 people were killed in Turkey. It was you, you knew the faces of the people that were killed and you knew their stories. Yeah. Like I heard so many stories of people who were killed in Orlando. And unfortunately, people don't know the stories of those who were killed in Turkey and in Bangladesh. Um, so I think it's our job to put them out there. Like mm-hmm. As the Muslim community, we have to put those stories out there. And it's really through social media. Um, we're not living in a time where we need the media anymore. Yeah, the media is helpful, but we have to take that into our own hands. Um, right. Actually, when I had the opportunity to attend the White House iftar last year and to sit with President Obama, one of the first uh, things I brought up was like the issue of the media and Fox News specifically. I just wanted to know like what, it, what were his thoughts on it. And he actually laughed. Like, I've never... Really? He genuinely laughed. And he said, what do you think Fox News does to me? And then... Oh, God. Yeah. He's like, you think you're suffering? I'm suffering, too. <laughs> um, and then he said that... He said the solution was social media. Like, he genuinely mm-hmm. believes in social media. And, like, the power is in our hands to put those stories out there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think that's a lot of it. Um, just putting those out there. And I don't know a specific statistic, but um, I think you have to say something like seven times for people to really hear it. People, like you could tell somebody, did you know that the majority of those who are victims of groups like ISIS are Muslim? They might hear it once and then they'll forget it as soon Mm -hmm. as an attack happens in Brussels or France, right? Mm -hmm. But if you just keep repeating that message over and over and over again, the people will eventually get it. You just have to say it enough times. And I know sometimes like we get frustrated and we're saying, mm-hmm. like, why do I have to keep repeating the same thing? It's really, that's, I think that's how we're scientifically programmed, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, you got to hear something a lot for them to get it. So Muslims are about 25% of the global population. But what we hear all the time, and maybe this is one of those things that people have heard it more than seven times, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure, that, you know, the problem is Islam itself. Because Islam teaches violence upon whomever. If there are, you know, nearly two billion Muslims and Islam were to accept and and normalize a a certain type of violence, wouldn't the world for the past 1,400 years just have been an onslaught of Islamic attacks? Exactly, yeah. We would not be sitting here right now if, like, Islam really promoted that and everyone Mm -hmm. was taught that growing up. We, like, the world would not exist right now because there's so many of us. Mm -hmm. People don't get that. I think what people don't understand is a lot of what we're seeing happening in the Middle East and, like, South Asia with the rise in extremism, a lot of it is because of, you know, economic issues, right? There's a lot of it has Mm -hmm. to do with political issues, right? Mm -hmm. 
the war in Iraq. People don't know that part. I don't know if it's because they don't know it or because they don't want to hear it. Um, I think it's a lot, it makes a lot more sense to some people to just blame things on Islam. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what a lot of politicians are saying. They're saying Islam is the problem. And what they don't know is Islam is the solution. Um, If people really looked at Islam and they read the Quran, they would see that, first of all, those verses are misinterpreted. Like if you actually look at what ISIS is saying, that's all misinterpreted. It's mm-hmm. not correct. And you're seeing like the top imams, sheikhs in the world who are speaking out against what these people are saying and that these people, like they're a cult and they've almost, they've created their own religion. Right. That, you know, if I was in a room with somebody who agreed with what ISIS is doing, we would have nothing in common, mm-hmm. honestly. What they're practicing is not Islam at all. Yeah, I think people, it's just easier for them to just blame their religion. It's much easier for them than to sit down and actually look at what caused this, right? ISIS did not exist, you know, 10 years ago. Right. I still remember the first press release we wrote about ISIS. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember the press release said something along the lines of how crazy this group is that even Al-Qaeda is condemning them. Yeah. And as soon as I read that, I was like, oh my goodness, like, like the people who were behind <laughs> 9-11 are condemning what these crazy people are doing. Mm-hmm. And that's when I realized, I was like, man, like we really have something else on our hands. Mm-hmm. And then obviously, like, you know, they've been getting worse and worse. And the more they do these attacks, the more people I think are starting to wake up a little bit to that they really aren't. These people can't be Muslim if they're doing these things. Like, yes, you can claim to be a Muslim, but are you really a Muslim if you're killing people and you're raping women? So I think they're differentiating themselves from us. You know, when you push back on the idea that these people aren't Muslim, I think there are a lot of people on the other side who are saying, well, what else could they be? Because they're not really understanding the nuance that, you know, somebody can claim to be something, but that doesn't mean that they're acting on behalf of two billion people, you know? Yeah. And then also, I think, like, it always goes back to the point that when somebody of a different faith does something, their faith does not come into question. Somebody can claim to be doing something on behalf of all of Christianity, mm-hmm. and you'll never see on the news, you know, his Christian identity being um, yeah. criticized for it. Mm-hmm. And I don't, yeah, I don't know, I don't know how we can change this. Like, how do you get somebody to stop looking at somebody's faith when they commit something? I would say that's probably pretty difficult right now, especially considering the fact that, like, whether or not everyday Muslims, I. I and I also have to side note, like, I really hate using the term moderate Muslims. Yeah. Because moderate Muslims are just Muslims. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, you know, when we see, like, all of these videos and stuff that ISIS put out where they're, you know, reading those misinterpreted verses of the Quran or they're saying, you know, oh, we put down this fatwa that says, you know, women must cover from head to toe and can't even, you can't even have your eyes showing or something mm-hmm. like that. I think there, there's still going to be a certain amount of the population that's, saying, oh, well, how could this not be Islam when they just don't understand? Not even seven times. They haven't heard one time what Islam is about. Is that just an education gap? I think a lot of it is an education gap. I think we're like, we're really lucky to live in a really diverse area where Mm -hmm. we grew up with really like diverse communities like my my university and actually not my university. My high school was extremely diverse. Mm -hmm. It was about 3,000 students and like, I met somebody from just about every um, faith background. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't an issue for me. And then I actually went to school in uh, Fredericksburg, Virginia, which is not very diverse at all. And it was mainly just you'd see African-Americans and then you'd see just white people. 
and you didn't really see much in between. Um, maybe if I went to Walmart, I might see a Muslim woman. And as soon as she sees me, I can see her eyes actually light up because she's not used to seeing somebody who looks like her mm -hmm. in her town. So she makes the effort to come up to me and like say, Assalamu alaikum. Um, unlike when I go to somewhere local here, there's so many Muslims. Yeah. People are so used to seeing it that we kind of take it for granted. Yeah. So I think because we live in this area, we think everybody's educated. But just drive about an hour and a half south, it's a yeah. completely different world. And a lot of America is like this. A lot of people have never met a Muslim in their life. Mm -hmm. And I've like spoken to groups of um, non-Muslim Americans. And I'll ask them, like, how many of you guys have a Muslim friend? Most people won't raise their hand. Mm -hmm. And I notice that the ones who do raise their hands, they're the ones who know more. Right. Yeah, so it makes sense. If you know a Muslim, like, your perceptions of Islam are going to be completely different. Because, you know, you're going to turn on the news and they're talking about how all Muslims are terrorists. And you're going to think, well, my best friend is not a terrorist and his dad's not a terrorist. I've known them since I was a kid and my dentist is not a terrorist. He's a Muslim. So, you know... I, I just think it takes one knowing one person. I think we should start a hashtag campaign, hashtag meet a Muslim. Yeah. We should do that. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> like that, I, I actually think that would be a good way to, to mm -hmm. just bring regular stories to people. Yeah. Or just like regular people to other people. And I think it's good to do that. I think some people have a problem with that. They feel, again, mm -hmm. like, why do I have to make myself normal to somebody else? I am mm -hmm. normal. And like, I don't see it as like, it's not something you have to do. Mm -hmm. It's something, I think it's something that we should do. Like, we're living in a really tough time. Yeah. And if we want to make things better, I feel like we should take, it's like a responsibility almost. Yeah. Like, I, I like would say to, to those, I assume you mean Muslims who yeah. don't want to do that. Yeah. I would say to those Muslims that, you know, maybe you don't want to have to normalize yourself to others, but in doing so, you're going to help somebody else out. It's like you just mentioned, like a lot of this is, does have to do with representation. I mean, if these non-Muslims, even if they don't know a Muslim directly, if they saw somebody on TV mm -hmm. who is a Muslim who is their newscaster or just is like, I don't know why I'm thinking news, I was going to say the weather person next, yeah. but, but you know what I mean, <laughs> like if they just, you know, had any, any form of contact, whether it be that minimal, um, you know, I, I think that that would definitely educate somebody or it would work to, you know, kind of quell a lot of the fears that maybe 15-year-old Arib in middle school or something. I wasn't yeah. middle school at 15, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Just yeah. like a lot of those young people right now who kind of are facing a lot of these Islamophobic issues mm -hmm. who don't know how to deal with them because, you know, they're going to middle school and they're getting bullied because they're getting called a terrorist yeah. and they don't know what to say. And maybe it'll help those people understand that, you know, there are other people out there like us. Mm-hmm. And there are other people out there who are willing to be the voice. Yeah. You know, I think the LGBTQ community has it down. They did such a good job at their PR mm -hmm. um, to the point where I, I, like, I think Ellen DeGeneres has like revolutionized how people perceive the mm -hmm. gay community. I agree. Yeah, yeah, like if we just had somebody like Ellen on TV every day at 3 p.m., <laughs> I think for sure people's perceptions of Muslims would change. Yeah. Um, yes, we have like Dr. Oz... We have, like, we had Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali, like, single-handedly changed, like, mm -hmm. how people saw Muslims. And actually, I think in, I think he did it more after his death, too. Like, after he died, you saw, like, I never thought I would be turning on CNN and then seeing somebody talking about a man named Muhammad. 
for like a week straight in a positive way. Like that does not happen. Nonstop coverage of a man named Muhammad's funeral. Yeah, in a good way. And then people who are like coming out to his funeral. It was beautiful. Yeah. Um, And yeah, he did so much good like while he was alive and after he died. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then what happened like a couple days later? Right. Orlando, right? And which is crazy. But I felt like we, the timing, like having Muhammad Ali's funeral and then that, I think it kind of, I hope it helped people that when they did see that this man named Omar Mateen, you know, killed 40 innocent lives, there was also a a man named Muhammad who did so much good, you know, for this country. Right. I hope people saw the difference between that. Yeah. I think that the LGBTQ community, their response to Orlando was, I mean, it was just so beautiful to me because I think it was the president of HRC who immediately came out with like a video on Facebook or something and said, you know, we're not going to allow these politicians to divide LGBTQ community and the Muslim community. Yeah. And in the video, you know, he said something like, we are one in the same. Like, yeah. you know, we're two communities who have been ostracized and now they're trying to pit us against one another. And that message, like, I, I wish I could share that on Facebook a million times every single day. Like, I mean, not to be like DJ Khaled and say <laughs> they, but like the ominous <laughs> they want to do that to every single community, right? Yeah. Because they want everybody else kind of quabbling while they, they yeah. control what the message is, right? Exactly. It's it's so politicized. And I always found it so ironic that those politicians who don't even stand with the LGBT community, who usually are against yeah. them having their rights, in that mm-hmm. moment, they were like, they saw it as an opportunity to, yeah, to turn us against each other. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I actually saw in the news some people calling them out for it. I saw people from the gay community saying, mm-hmm. like, hold up. Weren't you the person who was saying, I don't have my right to marry, like, last week? Right. And then now you're trying to... I- Stand I with me. think there was uh, an interview that Anderson Cooper saw did, that. right? Yeah, a lot of it is just people seeing it as an opportunity. I mean, Donald Trump mm-hmm. um, could be wrong, but I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure I remember him tweeting out, um, saying, asking people to, I guess, congratulate him for yeah. he said, he <laughs> for said guessing like, it was a Muslim. Yeah, he said, like, thanks for the congrats, <laughs> but, like, as if that was anything to be congratulatory yeah we should not be like celebrating being right about the death of people i have a question i know this is something that you know i've talked about with people and this is something that a lot of muslims struggle with where do you draw the line between saying you know hey like you know this isn't real islam muslims aren't violent um and muslims you know we don't advocate for killing people versus you know actually um mourning the death you know focusing on the victims that actually die and things like these right so whether it's orlando or san bernardino or all of these things happening domestically that are isis related or you know terror attacks but the victims aren't majority Muslim, right? So where do we draw the line between kind of mourning those who die versus saying, this is not us, this is not our image? Yeah. No, like, I know it's really hard. Like, we, mm-hmm. when an attack happens, we're normal humans like everyone else. Like, we're shocked and, like, we're sad and mm-hmm. we, like, go through all those feelings. And then on the other side, you're like, oh, people are expecting me to condemn this. So it's like you have mm-hmm. an extra set of responsibilities. Yeah. And... None of us want to do that, but um, I actually heard from like an expert. Um, he is actually he's he's helped the LGBT community like with their messaging and communications. How do you like respond to things and get people to see you in a different light? Mm-hmm. So he like comes and talks to the Muslim community all the time about 
yeah, how do you talk about these things when an attack happens? And he's the one who told me about, you know, you have to say something an X number of times before people hear it. Mm -hmm. In the end, it kind of, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. We could take the approach and say, I'm done. I'm never going to condemn a single thing in my life again. If people want to get upset about it, that's fine. But I'm only going to mourn from now on. We could mm -hmm. do that. In my opinion, I don't think it's going to get us where we need to be. Mm -hmm. And I don't look at condemning as apologizing. Like, we're not apologizing. We didn't do right. any of these attacks. Right. Yeah. But when our religion is under attack, like, we have to say something. I, I heard one time, like, a lecture. This guy was speaking, and he actually was speaking about something completely different. And then all of a sudden, he started talking about ISIS. And he was so passionate. He was saying, ISIS is willing to die for their ideology. Like, they're literally dying for this ideology that they believe in, are we willing to put in the same amount of effort like for our religion? And he's saying Muslims aren't putting in the same amount of effort to stand up for their religion. Like we're mm. we're too caught up in this whole like I don't want to apologize when it's not about apologizing. Right. It's like defending this religion that you right. care about. Well, why do you think that we've been put in this corner where we where we do need to feel like condemning is apologizing? I mean, what do you mean like we I mean, we've been forced to think that by saying, I don't want these things to happen, it's also saying, you know, I don't want this aspect of Islam to come out. Whereas, like, it's not really an aspect of Islam because it's, like we're saying, like, it's not, we don't believe in violence. Mm -hmm. And those two things kind of aren't, aren't really being separated in our own minds a mm -hmm. lot of the time. Right. As Muslims ourselves, we need to be able to say that a condemnation is just that. Mm -hmm. It is saying that these people don't represent me, they don't represent us, they don't, you know, they don't believe in what we believe in. And that's not necessarily an apology. Like, we need to understand that before we can make other people understand that. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of it is coming from the media because, like, when we do condemn things, they, they even say, like, that's not enough. Or they're saying, no Muslims have condemned right. what happened. And, yeah, that's something that I wanted to ask you about as well because up until... Honestly, I saw it probably every single attack up until the most recent one, um, Orlando. And, you know, every single news outlet would, would have some type of article or some type of op-ed piece saying, you know, where are the Muslims condemning this? Or where are all the global leaders saying you shouldn't do this? Whereas I would see something posted on Facebook that was that video. And then, like, the first 10 comments were people commenting articles of, you know, 100 sheikhs, you know, condemn ISIS or something like that. Yeah. So... How do we show people that? Because that's, those are articles or those are pieces of information that are easily found on the internet. Is it just a matter of us showing people seven times? I think it goes back to social media. Like the media, it's not helpful to them to show that Muslims are condemning. It's more, it's a better topic, obviously saying no one's condemning it. As long as, like you've heard like what bleeds leads, right? As mm -hmm. long as there's a problem, the media, mm -hmm. it's a business in the end, right? Yeah. They're going to keep getting views and more money and all of that. It's not helpful to them if there are Muslims who are having rallies against this, mm -hmm. if there's Muslims who are creating solutions for mm -hmm. extremism. And so it also kind of plays into that Donald Trump line of thinking where, you know, the only people becoming victims are non-Muslims or the only people becoming victims mm -hmm. are Christians or, or are white people or whatever. Whereas today we see this, this bombing in a Baghdad shopping center, yeah. you know, with 
absolutely no military connection whatsoever. It's just people literally shopping yeah. for a holiday with their families and children. 120 people die, and you don't see Donald Trump tweeting about an ISIS attack in, in Iraq. Yeah, because Muslim lives don't matter, right? You know, I've actually, sadly, I've started to see even Muslims like fall into this. They forget that there are real people you know, with real lives, mm-hmm. living in Baghdad and places like that. Yeah. Um, I've, Muslims, like when we see an attack happen in Paris or Brussels, we're the first ones to say something. I've seen Muslims even like stop condemning these attacks that are happening in Muslim countries. Um, yes, I think we're falling into that too. Mm-hmm. I think it's because people think, oh, those are war zones already. Yeah. Like they're, they're bound to just die anyway. But exactly. it's like... No, they don't have to be in that situation, and they, you know, they have lives too. Yeah, I mean, I want to show you this map. This is so. This is a map that I saw on Twitter the other day, uh, and I'll put this up on the uh, the cool links part of our website so people can see it. It's a map of Baghdad, um, and these are all of the bombings that have happened in the city since two thousand and three. Wow. As of like a couple days ago. What hasn't been bombed? Yeah, so as you can see, basically every single part of the city where people live has been bombed at one point or another. And most places it's been multiple, right? And this isn't just like... When I saw this, I I really didn't know how to feel. I actually read the story of one of the people who died in the Istanbul bombings, Mm -hmm. and I think he was from Tunisia. He was going to go to the border to get his son back from ISIS. Did you guys wow, read about that? I actually did not see that. Yeah, so um, this man, he's he was a doctor, and I think he worked for the military or something, and he was on a flight to go, um, I guess, get his son back because he, he was detained at the border, so his son was trying to go fight with ISIS in, I think he was trying to go to Syria. Um, and so while he was trying to go, I guess, convince his son, you know, come back, whatever, he's killed in an ISIS-led attack. So, I mean... That's the reality is that, you know, people's families, it's not like, you know, they're like, okay, whatever, I give up on my children or this is the reality. People haven't given up, but, you know, they try to go to different lengths to um, to get their their sons or their brothers or their uncles or cousins out of these situations. And then sometimes they can end up being the victim of, of that um, ideology. Right. Yeah. Have you guys seen the Kite Runner or read the book? Yes. Yeah. I I keep like I've probably told people about this a dozen times mm-hmm. over the past month. Like, I keep thinking about the story and like how I think they do a good job of showing how when there's a there's like a vacuum of power, how these radicals can just assume power or they can mm-hmm. kind of take places over. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think that a lot of people really don't understand in America how these groups come to exist in these mm-hmm. places where there's no leadership, in these places where the government has been broken down and there's nobody paying for the schools. Or there are no jobs and it pays more to work for ISIS. Exactly. Like, yeah, and, and it takes advantage of people's traumas too. Yeah. yeah, and I feel like people need to understand why there are people who can easily fall victim to this or can are the perfect type of prey that mm-hmm. these people are looking for, right? Yeah. And you know, like some of like the biggest arguments against like Donald Trump is that like people like Donald Trump are helping ISIS. They're Absolutely. helping ISIS to recruit. Absolutely. Like the amount of hatred we have seen in this country towards the Muslim community um, has definitely helped those kids who you know were feeling really disenfranchised, like they're not a part of this country, to feel he's made it easier for them to want to just give up yeah. and go join this group that's saying 
like come on over where you're going to be a part of this group you're going to have friends you're going to have you're going to have girls you're going to have all these you know amazing things and you're going to be best of all you're going to be you know working to make you know the world a better place against people like Donald Trump mm-hmm. like he's making it so easy for them yeah because it gives them a sense of purpose yeah right? yeah absolutely yeah. maybe you guys can kind of like sympathize with my feelings on this but over the past year or so like i keep telling my parents or I, i keep doing that thing that parents do where they tell their kids you know be careful who you talk to <laughs> or you know watch what you're saying or like be aware of your surroundings i don't know some some part of me gets pretty scared sometimes mm-hmm. when i realize it could be pretty easy for my parents who you know do live in this diverse area to still be the victim of whatever form of islamophobic attack yeah mm-hmm. and especially over the past year like it's become so normalized yeah, islamophobic and immigrant you know, right, and, and xenophobic. Exactly, yeah. like somebody might hear their yeah. accent and get really exactly, really pissed and like, off. and that, and on a on a very basic level, just based off accent, like it's happened to my parents in the past, like yeah. almost anybody's parents, immigrant parents. I don't know. Is is that an irrational fear for me to no, have? No, it's a real fear. Um, like the day of the, I cannot remember which attack it is. That's how many attacks we've had recently. Um, I think it might have been Orlando. I texted my mom because she was at the mall, and I told her be careful. you know there was an attack and she calls me she's like what happened and i was like this attack happened just be careful watch mm-hmm. you know where you are and then that day i was like i guess today i need to like you know maybe wear my scarf in a <laughs> different style where i don't know just because ambiguous. yeah just yeah. so like no one tries to like just in case i was scared that's the point mm-hmm. is that i was scared that day and i was yeah. scared for my mom yeah. so i think that's normal yeah i feel that way all the time yeah since san bernardino which was i guess late last year yeah I've counted just on my own I've counted over like 40 Islamophobic attacks just around the country and I can throw sources up if people want to see that but like that's just stuff that I've been counting right mm-hmm. so I'm sure like you guys at your organization have seen plenty more than I have that also happens to kind of coincide with that rhetoric that we were talking about from just flat out bigots like people like Donald Trump and whether it's like on a small scale like just throwing bacon at a mosque Yeah. Which by the way is hilarious to me. <laughs> because that probably will go towards feeding a lot of homeless people. Uh, <laughs> it's not kryptonite like just, like we're not going to like right. die. Right. Um, <laughs> bacon. But you know, is there a reason that like that the media uh, we keep talking about the media, but is there a reason why the media like doesn't pick those stories up? Because there are some that have been pretty bad. There was a guy in Alabama or Louisiana or something that was like he actually isn't even Muslim. but his attackers is like an indian grandpa and his attackers while beating him up yelled you know you dirty muslim or something like that and he was in the icu for a mm-hmm. while so you know it, these attacks range and we don't really hear about them yeah we really just got to put them out there um actually actually one of the most powerful stories i ever heard you probably heard this too um it was um a man from bangladesh right after 911 he was shot many times in the face and um so i got a chance to meet him which is really like amazing opportunity so for those who have i guess have not heard that story before but it was right after 911 this man ends up going and shooting multiple people that he thinks are muslim and i think at least one of the people that died wasn't even a muslim man he might have been sikh and he looked like he was muslim mm-hmm. and then the man who ended up surviving was a muslim man and he ended up going on a pilgrimage to hajj and then he when he went to hajj he was really inspired and he came back and he wanted to forgive the man who tried to kill him and he actually advocated to get him off of death row. 
So it's a really amazing story. Um, there's a book about it, but it's not, again, one of those stories where every American in this country knows that story of the Muslim yeah. man who was almost killed by a man who thought, you know, because of his faith. Yeah. You don't hear those. Yeah. You bring up another good point um, that one of the people wasn't even Muslim. And a lot of these Islamophobic attacks are just, obviously the people perpetrating them are just ignorant, but, and kind of crazy, I guess, but like a lot of their victims aren't actually Muslim. They're just people who they think or they perceive to be Muslim, Mm -hmm. which is, in my opinion, even more sad Yeah. (laughs) because it's like, I I mean, this one right here, Thursday, March 3rd, 2016, uh, in Spokane was a Sikh temple. Yeah. That yeah. you know, thirty thousand dollars worth of damage to this Sikh temple. These people aren't even Muslim. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it goes back to to show that people have this you know image or this stereotype that they just don't know. Yeah. You know what differentiates people, and to them, it's like you are not white. You are. You don't look like yeah. X, Y, and Z. Therefore, you are from the outside, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that kind of brings me back to like another. Just common talking point I've been telling people about, but people always say, oh, you know, Islamophobia and stuff like that, it's not racist because mm-hmm. Islam isn't a race. Right. So, yeah, sure, Islam's not a race. But when we have attacks on, you know, Hispanic people because they think they're Muslim or Sikhs because they think they're Muslim or mm-hmm. Hindus or whatever, that shows a greater propensity, I think, towards kind of racializing the faith. Mm-hmm among the people who are perpetrating these attacks, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's like these people think that, oh, because they see somebody who looks like you or me, that person must be mm-hmm. Muslim. Just yeah. just simply based off of their race. Yeah. So that is inherently making Islam, like, a racialized thing, especially within America. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that's a good segue into talking about the intersectionality of, um, for you, or I mean, for any of us sitting here, between race and and islam and you know sometimes you feel like you have to defend your race and for for you and i that's like defending blackness or do you defend islam or do you defend both at the same time and i know for me personally that has changed throughout the years you know like growing up you know i felt like i had to defend islam because it was right around 9 11 and all of that and then when i came to the realization that i was actually black (laughs) yeah. <laughs> later on in life um, I think we were similar in that <laughs> yes. growing up Sudanese <laughs> yes that's the Sudanese identity crisis everyone um, you know you feel like oh wow I have to defend that as well like I have such a huge burden you know what is that experience for you on a personal level and then how is that for you being a part of MPAC yeah I mean you mentioned it like we definitely had a lot of identity like, crises growing up Probably from like grade, first grade to uh, graduating from high school, I saw myself as just, I saw myself as, I guess, black. I wasn't sure, am I African American? What am I? I definitely had those conversations with my mom and she would tell me, you're brown. Like, that's not an answer. Um, And then when I went to college, I became, like a lot of my friends were African American. So I was, I was like, okay, I guess I'm African American. But then I started wearing the hijab. And then I was like, so what am I now? And then yeah. I realized, I was like, okay, so I'm a black, Arab, Muslim, but no one really asked me about my race. Because I don't know about you guys in college, we just kind of all were, it was very much like unified. We we're just like, okay, we're all Muslim. We didn't talk about race. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't a thing. Um, and then as soon as I graduated, it hit me. I was like, okay, so 
my race is, it is a part of my identity. When people see me, I'm black to them. Mm-hmm. I think I'm black first, and then I'm Muslim, and then I'm a woman. Mm-hmm. Those are, like, my three identities. And then I started noticing, like, people expecting me to, like, speak out on behalf of all black people. Um, when the Black Lives Matter movement came up, I definitely saw people starting to ask me about that more. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I think it does matter to people. Like, to us, we can think, oh, okay, my, I'm just a person in the end. But to people, when they see you, you are, like, how you look. Like, mm-hmm. people expect you to speak out on behalf of that. And especially for you, because you already have this platform and you're out there, so people are expecting some kind of reaction, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think it's good. Like, I'm glad I have this opportunity to, like, be an advocate for other black people in this country, especially black Muslims. It's really sad. Like, black Muslims, African-American Muslims, are, I think, 20 to 23% of the American Muslim community, and they don't get the recognition they deserve at all, mm-hmm. um, like, especially in mosque boards organizations our top like muslim organizations they have some like african-american representation but it's not enough like Mm -hmm. at all um Mm -hmm. and then i think you do see like that reflecting in the kind of issues they talk about Mm -hmm. i think if we did have more african-americans on our boards black lives matter would be a bigger deal you know among these organizations you'd see a lot of it but you know I've noticed a change like with social media again like I really I'm such a big advocate for social media it's changed so much Mm -hmm. um but like even the hashtag black girl magic like people are a lot like black women I think this was their year um Mm -hmm. everybody like wants to glow everyone wants to like you know yeah (laughs) glow up um it's like they're people are loving black women these days beyonce Mm -hmm. beyonce has even like i know there's criticism yeah she's transformed people i know have criticized her in the past saying that she hasn't she's not standing with the black community but i think recently she has kind of like owned more of her black identity and saying like she's more proud of certain features that are you know Mm -hmm. um that the black community has and like it's made me feel better about myself i'm like oh these parts of me that i used to try to hide they're beautiful like I'm, I'm proud of these parts of me. I think uh, a tagline for Cool for Thought at this point should be representation matters. Yeah. So we've yes. said it like 50 times. But <laughs> yes. it also kind of brings me back to what you were talking about with Muhammad Ali. Because one thing that I saw among his funeral coverage a lot um, on social media, on major news networks, was that he, quote unquote, transcended race. Mm-hmm. And that he transcended religion. And I think a lot of people do that to these Muslim leaders or these black leaders or whomever they may be, really non-white people, non-white, non-prototypical Christian Americans, because they want to normalize them for their audience. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, they take away their Muslim identity and they take away their black identity and things like that. You know what I mean? Then why don't they do that when a, a man is like committing an act of terror? Take away, in that case, be fair, take away his his race and his religious identity. It's like you pick and choose, right? Right. Yeah. That's not, yeah, yeah that's you, not fair. You choose what you want to, you know, diffuse or dilute, right? In because they have, to frame, they have to frame the message. It's all about framing. And, okay, going back to Beyonce again. Do you guys, <laughs> <laughs> you guys, I'm sure, remember when, I think it was a Super Bowl, right? When she came out with Formation. <gasps> and people were shocked. People and it was livid. mainly... It was mainly, it was mainly, you know, white people, right? Yeah. Who, who were, Fox who were shocked, right? Yeah. How dare she, you know, come out and start politicizing the Super Bowl? This is not the time and place. And I think people forgot Beyonce was black. This entire time, Beyonce has been black. It's nothing new. I think they just chose to not see her as black. They saw her as 
a pop star. She's beautiful and she's exotic and yeah. she's this, but no, she's not black, right? Yeah. Until she started talking about black issues. Right. Yeah. So we've kind of danced around this a little bit. You're black, you're Muslim, you're visible Muslim wearing mm-hmm. a job. What is life for you like right now? And you're a woman. Yeah. Okay, so people have asked me this before, and I don't like want to play the victim at all. Like I, most of the time, I don't hear anything. I'm not walking around and every five seconds I'm hearing some kind of Islamophobic slur. I'm not hearing some racial slur or some like sexist slur. It's not like an everyday for me. But I think if I sit down and talk to somebody who is not wearing a scarf, not black and not a woman, they would not experience what I experience. I think on a daily basis. And I think I try to normalize it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's normal for me to get in a cab, right? And then have a cab driver um, at the same time flirting with me at, at, you know, on the opposite end, he's bashing my faith. I've definitely had that experience before and it's not normal. It's not okay. But I think like to get through my day, I'm like, oh, it's not a big deal, whatever. Right. But it, I think it is a big deal. I think when that happens one time, even if it's once every like five years, that's bad. Like that's not okay for somebody to speak to you in that way because everyone doesn't experience it. And I think we do need to talk about it. But also, I'm not going to play the victim that there are plenty of times I get in a cab. Almost every single time I get in a cab, I'm being respected and I'm not having somebody bash my faith. Um, so I try to do, I do try to focus on like the positive things that, that happen versus the negative. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank this you. was fun. That yeah. was really cool. Yeah, and I think that's actually a really good like positive note to end on. It's yeah. like, you know not just looking at like all the negative things and trying to just bash people or bash policies, but really think, you know, be more thoughtful as to what strategy we can do to, you know, go forward. Mm -hmm. The current political climate targets those three often intersecting groups that I mentioned earlier, Latinos, African-Americans, and Muslims. In the words of Michael Scott Moore, Americans are learning what Europeans have known for years. Islam bashing wins votes. Whether it's Donald Trump wanting to ban Muslim immigrants or the guy who led Brexit by scaring everyone about refugees, the world hasn't been too kind to Muslims lately. Then we've got ISIS, who claim to be acting on behalf of Islam, yet commit the largest sins known to the faith day in and day out, ostracizing the vast majority of the nearly 2 billion Muslims worldwide. Who will speak up for us? And when we do speak up, who's listening? If you guys liked the episode, please make sure to subscribe on iTunes, share the episode with friends, and check out the other episodes that we've got up on the feed. If you have a request for a topic or a guest, you can let us know by leaving a comment on the website www.coolforthought.com. I can't express how much we appreciate the support you all have shown us over the past few months. We've got some great episodes coming up that feature some very relevant topics, and I hope you'll stay tuned in. As always, stay hungry.